Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parn Paget, a physical therapist, and I serve as the secretary of the DDSIG. I'm very excited to be here for this episode with Dr. Evan Cohen from the Doctor of Physical Therapy Program South at Rutgers University. I'm going to let Evan introduce himself and uh, tell us a little bit about his work. Uh, thanks, Parm, and thanks to the DDSIG for inviting me to do this. Um, it's, it's kind of exciting to, to see this kind of stuff. Um, uh, thanks for the intro. Again, I've been a physical therapist for uh, quite a while now. I graduated from PT school back in 1992 and have been a board-certified uh, neurologic specialist since 2002. Uh, after practicing for, uh, for 10 or 11 years or so, I started to get involved in teaching and uh, have been teaching full-time since then, uh, earned my PhD back in 2010, and have really been focusing on neurologic practice for, for many, many years. Great. The thing that drew me to neuro-PT practice in the first place was the challenge, the puzzle, the, uh, the job of evaluating and really trying to prioritize and figure out not just what was going on, but really predicting what's going to happen with this person who we're expecting to have some kind of decline in the future. And I just found myself coming back more and more to working with people with MS. I just, I found them fascinating. Uh So it was sort of a no brainer that my research interests were going to evolve from there as well. Um, So that's, uh, that's where a lot of my work has been uh, between clinical practice, working with people with MS less now than I would like, unfortunately. Um, But spending a lot of time doing research and really thinking about improving physical therapy practice um, for people with MS. Great. So I'm curious about the work that you've done in fatigue mm. and MS. I think fatigue is becoming a little bit more, um, you know, we're becoming more aware as clinicians of fatigue and the effect of fatigue on patients' performance, ability to learn, um, and, you know, how they're responding to our interventions. And so I, I'm just curious about, if you could talk a little bit about the work that you've done mm-hmm. in fatigue in people with MS. Sure. Um, so I'm going to start by, um, by giving you some definitions, uh, by operationalizing what, what I mean by fatigue. Because I think one of, one of the biggest problems in the literature is that, um, is that fatigue is a garbage pail term that is used to describe many things usually poorly. So again, I I work with people with MS and so do my closest colleagues, and we recognize that fatigue is a big issue. And one of the things that we were finding as we were looking in the literature is that also really common in people with Parkinson's disease and stroke and spinal cord injury and a lot of other neurologic problems. And um, 
I think people classically think of fatigue as a symptom of MS, and it is. It's the most commonly experienced symptom by people with MS, but it's very common across a lot of other uh, diagnostic groups. Right. The terminology is um, inconsistent, to say the least. So we have been working, and we're actually in the midst of writing up a paper about it now, uh, trying to taxonomize uh, some terminology. And the very simple definition for us, so fatigue to me is a symptom. It's the person's perception of tiredness. And that is different than what what I call fatigability, which is a change in physical performance. Uh, And classically, we think about that after repetition, but it it doesn't have to be after repetition of that activity. It's after some, and again, I'm going to use the word fatigue in here to help define it, which is not a good idea. Um, But after some fatiguing event, it changes physical performance. So so again, differentiating those two things, fatigue is a symptom. It's how somebody feels. Fatigability is a physical change. It's a change in performance, something that can be measured. Uh, where fatigue, the closest way that we can measure fatigue is with, um, uh, you know, with some kind of a scale or self-report tool. But we can measure fatigability uh, fairly easily, depending on what it is that we're looking at. Right. So, so some of you know some of the work that we did. One of the earliest studies that we published that looked at that. Um, what our what our experience showed us is that. Our patients with MS um, vary, and we know that, They're, that their performance varies. We also know that people with MS experience more fatigue, say, in the afternoon than the morning. There's sort of a classic pattern there. But it, 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 the earlier literature on that didn't, didn't show any real connection between fatigue and fatigability. And the, the literature since that time have continued to not confirm a relationship between fatigue and fatigability. Somebody can feel terribly tired and still be performing perfectly well. And mm-hmm. somebody could be performing terribly compared to how they usually perform and they may not complain of any fatigue at all. Um, so that is a complicating factor. So you, the way you're describing this, it's sort of like fatigue is subjective for lack of a better word, the way somebody feels, whereas fatigability is really something that's objective that we can measure. Spot on. That's right. exactly okay. right. So, um, you know, one of the studies that we did, again, what we were seeing is that when, when our patients were not, not complaining of being fatigued, but what we saw is even within a single treatment session, that there was such fatigability that it really changed their performance. So, Uh, One of our studies, it was published back in in 2013, and what we did was we we had a group of people come in, we did a a crossover study, which is something common that we do, it's a useful way to control for the variability in in people with MS. So they come in, they do one condition, and then there's some washout period, and then they come back and do the second condition so we can compare them to each other. And we had them come in a week apart, and we had them do the Berg. Most, I'm sure our audience is familiar with the Berg-Mallet scale. And then they either laid on a table for six minutes or they walked for six minutes. They, they essentially did the six-minute walk test. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they weren't, you know, they weren't running. They're walking. They're walking at pace or they were resting. Six minutes, which if you think about six minutes of walking, that's not a lot of walking. If you go food shopping, that's a fraction of your trip. 
And then we repeated the test. And what we found was the people that did the test and then rested and then did the test again did statistically the same. And the people who, did, who walked in between, they had a, a, a significant difference in how they performed. They performed much worse after six minutes of walking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a measurable difference. And, and, that, and that just sort of validates. And there's, there's other literature that looks at things like reaction time and other functional uh, tests of balance and uh, dynamic posturography. And all of those things show that even after six minutes of walking, there's a big decline in function. And that- so totally interesting, right? When, when, if you think about the way a lot of times our PT eval goes down, mm-hmm. we might save our outcome measure for the end. So you might do That's all right. this stuff with somebody first, gate speed, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then you do the Berg balance scale at the end. Then whenever they come back and you're retesting them, it's retest day. So you're gonna start out with the Berg balance mm-hmm. scale so just even within ourselves, we might be, you know, changing yeah. their statistical response with actually no change in our person. Yeah. The way that the stud, that that study was done, it wasn't really a look at, uh, let's call it reliability, mm-hmm. um, but it makes, it, it has to raise the question about reliability. <laughs> right. You know, if, if I have two patients and, and one gets the spot right out in front of the clinic, and only has to walk 20 feet to get in, and another one had to take the bus, and they have to walk from the bus stop to get inside the practice, the two of them might have been identical before they came in, but they're, they're, they have experienced fatigability and changed their performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you could use something like the Berg balance scale to measure fatigability. That's, is that's essentially what you did in that that's study? Right. That's right. And there are a number of other um, things that have been looked at in the same way. Uh, again, the dynamic gate index in particular. Mm-hmm. And so in the clinic, do you recommend clinicians sort of measure for fatigability and what's a good way to do that? So, our work about fatigability in people with MS has made me draw the parallel to on-off time for people with Parkinson's disease, Mm -hmm. right? There's a clear difference in physical performance in people with Parkinson's disease who are drug responders when they're on or when they're off Mm -hmm. and throughout their cycle, right? They're, they're, They're improving, they're declining. It changes through their cycle. And for people with MS, it's the same kind of thing on fatigue or off fatigue, if they're fresh versus they're, if they're fatigued. So what we've been advocating for a, a lot lately is you got to treat your patient like that. So they come in and maybe you give them a very quick screening, but yet you've got to kind of figure out what outcome is relevant for you and then test them and then put them through all of the rest of the paces and then test them again and see what happens. So like, what are you talking about? Like a five sign, five times sit to stand, something like that? Uh, as a before and after? Mm-hmm. Oh, I might even do the Berg. Although, uh, well, what I would say, and so maybe, you know, this is, I think that might've been a, a reflex of somebody who's not in regular practice anymore. Right, yeah. For the amount of time that it takes, uh, you know, the Berg probably isn't, isn't the best option there. It would be interesting to see whether um, the effect is as powerful on a, uh, like a quicker test of balance, four square tug, five times six stands, some kind of functional measure like that. What about gate speed? Like, what I would suggest in terms of a, a general recommendation is 
you know, find out what the relevant piece is, right? Is it, is it walking speed? Is it balancing? Is it stair climbing? Is it transferring? And use that, give yourself that baseline. Mm-hmm. And, and if that doesn't work, if you do five times sit to stand and don't see that much of a difference, but you still hypothesize that that's a problem on the second visit, maybe do something else, do, do the four square. Okay, and then yeah. you do the tug a few times. Or even timing single leg stance, you know, to, yeah. if, if balance is an issue, like that's definitely. Yeah. I, I would not be surprised um, to see that those things are difficult too. I mean, there, again, there, there are changes in posturography. So to see a change in a single limb stance test, I would not be surprised by that at all. Um, but I think what, what's nice about it though, is you can quantify it. And uh, again, I like, I like the six minute walk and it's something that we've been using partially because it's also an outcome measure for our research study. That's a standardized dose that you can deliver, right? You can give any of your patients the instructions and, and then it quantifies the before to after. And so, so here's, you, you, you asked me um, about, about changes in walking speed. So that's the perfect segue into the other element that we're still doing observationally. And that is um, looking at how walking changes during prolonged walks. Um, I think uh, there was an article published not too long ago that emphatically stated that the 25-foot timed walk test is the best test of physical function for people with multiple sclerosis. But what it is, is uh, it has the soundest psychometrics. Right, yeah. Um, but it's also not, a, it's not a, a, so it's a good research tool, but it's not a really good clinical tool um, because walking 25 feet is not complicated for all but our most disabled patients. Yeah, that's not real life. I mean... 25 feet is not even to the mailbox and back. So uh, doing a more prolonged test is more useful. But one of the things, again, that um, one of the things that I saw was my patients getting worse while they walked. That during the course of a two, three, four minute walk, their walking was getting worse. Right. So let's measure that. Because a a lot of the studies that look at, uh, again, what I'm calling fatigability do some kind of a pretest, then they do some tiring activity, then they do the post-test. And we thought, well, what actually happens during the walk? Let's see what's going on there. So, so we did. We had people do a six-minute walk on it as well, and we looked at their walking. And what we the, the simplest analysis was looking at how did people look in the first minute compared to the sixth minute? And to, well, I was going to say to nobody's surprise, certainly not to my surprise, they looked worse. They walked slower. They took fewer, shorter, and slower steps in the sixth minute compared to the first minute. Not not a real surprise, but we were starting to quantify it. But one of the things that came out of that actually was um, they also had less variability in their temporal and spatial walking measures. That was a surprise because that's not what I saw. I saw more inconsistent movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 2D measures were more consistent. So, uh, so the the study that we uh, that we have been working on for the last couple of years and are starting now to collect data at a couple of other sites is a longer walk test, and we're doing not just the 2D, but we're doing um, like the 3D kinematics, and we're looking at EMG measures to really get a sense of what changes are happening because we're trying to map how those changes happen across the whole population. So when you say a longer walk test, what, how much? The 12-minute 12, 12 walk, okay. um, for which there's not a lot of literature, 
Mm -hmm. um, but the rationale for that was there, particularly for people who were um, more, who had more mild MS, they, mm -hmm. I, I felt like they never really hit the wall. They didn't, they didn't hit that level of real fatigability. So the, like the pattern, the pattern that they had after six minutes looked like the same pattern that some of the more disabled participants had after um, just two or three minutes. So it's more drawn out. So we decided to do the 12. And to my surprise, even, even my most disabled participants, people with EDSS scores of five and a half or six, were able to actually do a 12-minute walk. Uh, and of the, of the ones who I personally recorded, they, nobody even took a break. So they were quite capable of doing. Um, we're still in the midst of analyzing that data, but some of the preliminary stuff shows the same kinds of trends that we saw in the six-minute walk test. We just need to now put it together and look at everything more completely. And uh, the arm that I'm actually on right now is collecting data on healthy controls to, to really do a good comparison. Mm -hmm. But really what I'm thinking about is if we can quantify what fatigability looks like, then maybe, maybe that's actually an outcome measure for us. If we know that velocity changes by X percent and step time changes by X percent and you know, knee and ankle joint excursions change by X percent, then maybe when we're doing an intervention, we can actually measure those things and see, are we actually having an effect on fatigability? Are we actually able to keep them walking at the way that they start rather than the way that they finish? But that's, uh, that's still a little ways away. Um, mm -hmm. I'm trying to gather all that data, but that's, that's sort of the big picture of that element of, of my research is trying to better describe what this fatigability really looks like so that we can better quantify it uh, both as clinicians with individual patients, but also looking at the population as a whole. And then try to figure out is, are, are the interventions that we think are helping, are they actually impacting fatigability? Mm -hmm. Are they able to maintain that function for a longer period of time? Yeah. Um, I, it's super interesting to, to separate that out and really sort of try to understand that fatigability piece. I think it's a place where we as clinicians can start paying some good attention and trying to do that quantifying throughout our session with people and see how they do. Or even time of day, you might purposefully try to, you know, you see a patient in the morning and then at their next session, you see them in the afternoon and, and do some of those same quick measures and see if there's a difference. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that happens over the course of a day and how somebody feels and getting to that feeling part. So the more subjective piece of what we're talking about, the fatigue, what measures do you recommend for that? Do you use specific um, outcome measures for, for measuring fatigue? Yeah, well, I, I do. Um... So the commonly used tools like the, the modified fatigue impact scale, the fatigue severity scale, those, those are measures of the impact of fatigue overall. Mm -hmm. And those are nice as baseline measures. So for, for any person with MS, uh, um, they're filling out one of those forms. Um, and for every research study that I've done with people with MS, there's always been some kind of measure of fatigue, not necessarily as an outcome, but at least as a descriptor. Mm -hmm. But when you're trying to see how much fatigue you induce by doing an activity, 
the best thing that uh, that I, I think of for that is a visual analog scale. Okay. So for uh, for each of the studies that that uh, we talked about for the twelve minute walk study for the uh, the bird balance scale study, right before and right after the intervention, we we give them a, a visual analog scale. So for that twelve minute walk test. The very last thing we do before we have them stand up is we give them a blank VAS and say, you know, please make a tick mark on here. And then when they're finished, as soon as they sit down, they get another form and it's the, you know, the same question. And then we measure the, different, the difference there. Um, Evan, one thing I wanted to ask about is some, some intervention stuff around fatigue. So what can we do to address, start addressing fatigue in people or, or can we? In people with MS? So I think the, the classic things about improving fatigue are um, education programs. Um, and you can find some info about that through the MS Society. Um, and those, those, those tend to work. People who participate in fatigue education programs do um, have improved fatigue. Um, uh, in terms of fatigue ability, and a little bit of fatigue. I think, you know, the, when, as a PT, I think the default is like endurance training, right? Because if we can help improve, it, like endurance is sort of the outcome of, uh, that's affected by fatigability, mm -hmm. right? If the, not so much if the person feels tired, right? If they feel tired, they might slow down. But if they have changes in their function, that keeps them from being able to do that activity for a long period of time. Um, but I'll steer you towards um, some of the other work that we've been doing, looking at um, alternative training models. And you know, one of the things that, that we, we published a couple of studies um, that are in a similar vein. One looked at interval walking training compared to continuous walking training. And this is a, this is a very simple concept that um, we know that uh, if, if we look at like six minute walk test data, and look at how, pe how people walk during that test. We know that people typically walk the fastest during the first minute, slow down a bit for the second minute, then hit like a plateau for most of the rest of the walk. And then for healthy adults, they sort of curve back up. For people with MS, that's a, a little bit flatter. They come back up and not so much. But so they're, they're walking fast at first and then they drop off. And so very simply, what we did was we broke their walking into two minute chunks. They drop off after two minutes. Well, let's stop them after two minutes. So we had them walk for two minutes and then rest for two minutes and then walk for two minutes and then rest for two minutes and then walk for two more minutes. So again, total of six minutes. And that, that six minute walk is the common denominator for a lot of my work. And what we found is people walk farther and faster when we had them take those rest breaks, which on one hand is like, oh, well, of course they did. You know, it seems so, it seems like common sense. But on the other side, when you're thinking about therapy dosing, about the, the actual amount of work that a person is doing, that same six minutes of work, they're able to accomplish much more. So one of the elements that I think about is taking, I, I don't want to say like a, a, not a regimented planned break. I mean, we needed to do that for research purposes, but for a lot of our patients with MS, and they're in general, a, a group that is very knowledgeable about their condition and uh, knowledgeable about their symptoms. And when I can say, hey, you know what? you seem to start to fade off a little bit after three and a half minutes. Let's stop and rest and then come back again. Because the classic model for us is we walk until the person's pooped. 
But by the time they're at the end of that same six minutes of walking, their walking is terrible. They're dragging themselves. The, there's something, there's some increase in the physiological cost of walking too. And that, that we're trying to parse out exactly what it is that's causing that. Um, so then do you see an improvement? Like if you train somebody that way, like, I mean, essentially you were talking about an interval training type that's program. Right. That's right. So we have, we have some sample data that we, we published that we're actually, um, the, the big project I'm working on now, we got a, a grant from the MS Society to do a pilot size randomized control trial of that as an intervention. Because what we found in our sample data was that's exactly what happened. People walked farther and faster during the training sessions. And so when they were done, they walked farther and faster. Um, which, but then did you retest like a six minute walk test after whatever X right. number of weeks of training? That's right. So the baseline test was a six minute walk. Mm -hmm. And then they came in and either did two, two and two, or they did six minutes of walking as their training. And they did that twice a week for, I think that was for four weeks if I'm recalling that offhand. And then they did their post test. And you know, if you think about it, in, again, in a, in a logical way, they did more. They, they in, instead of doing it in six minutes, they took ten minutes, but they did the same six minutes worth of work. But they were able to work at a heavier pace, right? Faster walk, um, and for, so th that and, and that's exactly the training effect that we saw. Um, and I think uh, you know working in those short bursts is helpful. One, Another study that we published used a maximal strength training model where we had people do very uh, high resistance, low reps, four by four at like 90 to 95% of one RM. Very heavy weight of um, a seated leg press, nothing complicated, just, you know, hips and knees. And their walking got faster, their balance got better. And uh, you know, part of uh, I think the argument that I've consistently made is we are we're underdosing our patients. We we give them too much rest, and part of that comes because we work them hard and then they get pooped, and then there's this long refractory period until they feel better again. Mm -hmm. So I think you know again this is again still a little bit in in hearsay. It's a combination of the beginnings of, of the published evidence coupled with my expert opinion is um, we need to work them hard and short, hard and break, hard and break, hard and break. Because our patients can do it. They can do a lot. But we, if we work them too much without that rest, then they, then they feel like crap. They don't want to come back. They feel terrible for days afterward. But if we give them those rests, they can still function at a higher level. Um, my uh, good friend and colleague, Herb Kropatkin, is um, working on a study right now, working on a, like a maximum, speed, a maximum speed training study, where we're taking the same interval training model that, that, we're, that we've done. And instead of having people just walk at their comfortable pace, to walk as fast as possible, mm -hmm. but, but pushing them very, very hard, and then stopping and resting. And then pushing them very, very hard, and then stopping and resting. Right, so get, getting closer and closer to like classic interval training. That's right, and and those things seem to be really, really promising. You know, it'll be a matter of ultimately, you know, I think once we get past like proof of concept to really take that and mimic some of the other exercise in MS literature 
that looks at a 45 hour long, you know, 45 minute or hour long program two to three times per week for eight weeks and really see if we incorporate those high intensity interval elements, will it have the same benefit? Will it be more beneficial? Uh, Mm -hmm. Because my thought is if, if, if the, if the, if the results are better, that's great. If the results are the same, but it induces less fatigue, then that's also better. Right. And that's one of the things that we see is that we're getting those better training results with less fatigue. People don't, Mm -hmm. don't feel as tired when they're done, even though they've done even more training than they would have otherwise. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we all use it. And so, um, you know, I think we're starting to see more and more of this interval training concept hitting the neurodegenerative disease population and, and people respond to it and, and seem to enjoy it. It's fun, fun to see. Thanks. Let me share something else. There was another study that I published a couple of years ago. It, I, I, it's not my, it's not my wheelhouse, but it was a study where, where it was a pilot looking at a yoga program for people. Oh, I am so glad you talked about that. Cause I was going to ask you. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it's a little bit of my wheelhouse. So I'm pretty okay. excited. Oh, very good. Um, I ended up getting involved in it. One of my colleagues, uh, who is a, a PhD trained immunologist and, uh, yoga practitioner and trainer. And, uh, she, she has invested in yoga. We ended up, one of the problems that we saw in the literature is that um, very few of the studies had well-described methodologies. So the method would say something like, people participated in a Hatha yoga session that lasted 45 minutes three times per week. And that mm-hmm. was the whole description of the method. There was like, like everybody knows what a 45-minute a Hatha yoga session includes. So we actually started from scratch um, and built a program um, using a, like a repeated uh, interview panel with a series of experts, people with MS, neurologists, yoga practitioners to, to come up with this, this protocol. And one of the things that we did as part of the protocol is start with a very low base level intervention that achieved the, the goal at hand. And then we built up like a medium and a complex level. So, you know, when, when thinking about an intervention like that, to have a plan for, if, okay, if, if they're having difficulty, here's an easier thing I can do. Here's a moderate thing. Here's a harder thing I can do. Um, I mean, that's a good general rule to me for PT practice anyway, right? Having an idea of, of where, what the starting point is and how to progress that nicely. Mm-hmm. What did you find in that yoga study? Well, so it was just a pilot. Uh, it was not a controlled study. So uh, everything that I'm going to tell you, you should take with a grain of salt. Um, but there were a lot of improvements. We, we measured a lot of different things. Um, we did not find a difference in, um, uh, we, took, we took some respiratory measures. We didn't see a difference in those. Um, but I think that uh, we maybe picked the wrong measure for that. Um, we used the multiple sclerosis quality of life inventory, which is a series of 10 scales, including the SF36 and then a pain scale and a fatigue scale and a, a bladder scale and a bowel scale and a sexual satisfaction scale. So 10 different surveys. It was a, we made them do a lot of surveys. We also yeah. drew blood. I'll, t- I'll talk about that in a minute. And then had them do functional testing. And you know what? Their, their, their walking got better. Uh, a number of the um, quality of life measures improved. 
Um, we did uh, five times set to standard functional reach and those things improved also. Um, so we saw a lot of changes. Um, but again, I, knowing that I was not the, you know, the yoga believer on the study, I, my uh, thought about the results is more reserved that um, I, I can't tell you it was the yoga that did it. I mean, it's, uh, it had, the group happened to be all women just coincidentally, but they came down. Uh, attendance was very high. They were very invested in each other. Uh, and in us, I, I frankly think that there might've been some element of bias there. I think they really wanted it to work. Um, so we didn't have a control group. I, like, I think if we just had them there to meet for tea twice a week, they probably would have made some of those improvements too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, my, I'm reserved about it until we can do a proper randomized control trial about it. Mm-hmm. I think, I think also sometimes <clears throat> it's not so much specifically what we do. It's just that we do, we give people something to do that is challenging. So I like the stratification of the groups because I think it's really meeting people where they're at mm-hmm. and then having a group interaction, I think is very hard to separate out. Like you said, they were invested in each other and, yeah. and there's something to that. We see that. And, and how do we really account for that? Do we need to like, if that's, if the, if that's part of the program, you know, maybe we don't really need to like quantify it specifically. Um, but I do think people do well in a group setting. And yeah. well, I think, I think your point also about get, getting them to do something. Uh, like, I think the, the thing that I uh, think is most valuable is finding something that your patient appreciates and that they can believe in and do. If your patient is going to do yoga, then you should do yoga with that person. And right, yeah. if, they, if they want to do CrossFit, then you've got to figure out how to modify a CrossFit program to work for them. And if all they want to do is, is do cardio and, and ride a bike or get back to running or swimming, our, our job is to figure out how to get that person invested in their own health and wellness and rehab. You know, my thought is it, it's much less about the what and more about the if, right? Yeah, you're in the yeah. Strengthening program, like you know, there, there's lots of evidence that shows the benefits of a strengthening program for people with MS, and there are a variety of different programs, and there are programs that don't do strengthening; they've only done aerobic training. And my students are actually now working on a systematic review looking at a at combined training where there's an aerobic and a strengthening element. And you know what? All of those studies have positive findings. And if I've got a patient who doesn't want to do strength training, but they're going to do the cardio, or you know what? I'm going to find an activity that's going to try to help them meet their needs as well as possible. Because if they're right. doing that two or three times a week, but they're going to skip the, the strengthening anyway, like you said, finding, meeting them at their level. And right, meeting them, that. yeah. So I, I really, I love those points. I think they're so interesting. All right, so um, we've been chatting for a while. We should probably start moving towards wrap up here. Okay. Um, we always like to ask people a couple of personal questions so our audience can get to know the person behind the mic. Mm-hmm. So besides watching the Bruins, what do you like to do? Um, like well, I, uh, so I, I'm, I'm obviously I'm a very big hockey fan. I, uh, do you play hockey too, or did you? I do. As a matter of fact, I had a game uh, just last night that I'm still quite tired from. Um, yeah, I started playing when I was uh, about 13 years old or so. 
I've never been particularly good, although uh, practice makes perfect. I'm getting close to my 10,000 hours or so. You know, I'm finally, finally now that I've turned 50, I'm finally better than I was when I was, when I was 18 or so. I'm so um, impressed by adults that play hockey because uh, it's like brutal. I mean, and the way that these rinks go, like sometimes you're out there at like 10 p.m. playing the hockey. The time is pretty terrible. When yeah. Oftentimes when I tell people I play ice hockey, they immediately envision a game like the Stanley Cup game tonight where it's these elite athletes skating at incredible speeds and just pounding into each other. And it's not quite the same in adults, uh, what we call beer league hockey. It's, it's not quite the same. You know, it, usually if there's a collision, it's by accident. There's there's no checking. At least there's not supposed to be. Any so it's it's a more mild form of the game. Um, but yeah, and I'm, a, so I'm also a big fan. I can I can watch hockey almost any time, uh, from pee wees to pros. Fun. That and I'm you know I'm a little passionate about this PT stuff, so I, I tend to talk about it a lot. I yeah, I can tell. I, I do um I do like doing service work with the MS Society. Um, <laughs> One of my favorite things to do. Their their biggest fundraiser every year is their is the bike ride that, uh, here in 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 this area. It's called the City to Shore Ride. They they uh, go from uh, not quite Philadelphia. They start in the Cherry Hill area, but then drive then uh, ride the 75 miles down to the Jersey Shore. And I usually end up drafting a, a bunch of my students to help that day. But we we end up doing the start at that event and. Man, there there were like six or seven thousand riders at that event, and we you know get them set and hustle them off and, and clean up after. It's it's a lot it's a lot of fun and something that's that's really rewarding. Great. So, um, all right. So, Evan, it was great talking with you this evening. I think we had a really rich, uh, interesting, fun conversation, and I hope our listeners get a lot out of it. I hope you'll consider coming back and uh, chatting with us again. I think there's a a lot more that we could talk about. Um, so thanks for, for joining us this evening. I'll be happy to come back anytime. Thanks for having me. This episode was edited by Sarah Crandall. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay, creator of the PT Pintcast, for providing music. 4D is produced by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org or check us out on Facebook and spread the word about 4D on social media. Thanks for listening. The other thing you should know, Evan, is that we do bloopers. So um, you're recording just the audio? Yeah, well, we're, yes. I mean, we're recording the whole thing, but the right. only thing that will okay. go out is the audio. I don't, to, I don't need to like powder my scalp. No. <laughs> oh, that's right. Who, who are you guys rooting for? Bruins. Mm, sorry, I can't, I can't root for the Bruins. The score is 1-0 for the other team. Wait, the Blues Farm. Sorry, guys. Oh, I don't know if I've ever even heard of that team. <laughs>